Good morning. I love hearing these guys play. It is a pleasure to listen to them and, and uh, to know their heart and, uh, and what they do and how they do it. And I'm going to, I'm doing something a little different here. All right. You see this thing here? It's, it's, it's a, it's the camera. I'm going to try some video and see what happens. You know, uh, you know, just who knows? We'll see. It's not because I'm pretty. I mean, I know I am, but you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I'm totally just kidding. I mean, you know, look at this thing. Um, but uh, we'll see how it works, and we'll give it a whirl. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, we're going to get after it. First Timothy chapter six, verse three through ten. So let's pray. Father, this this morning we we come before you, and we recognize that we are in absolute utter need of you to do your work among us. Holy Spirit, we pray. Uh, We are your people. Uh, You indwell us individually and corporately. And Lord Jesus, you move among your people. So we ask you to rule this morning. We ask you to be counselor, helper, teacher, guide. Pray you'd cause your word to come alive and that you would accomplish all that you send it forth for today. So that's what we ask for, for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right, let's see how this works. Thank you, Dean. Got it. First Timothy 6, 3 to 10. Godliness is the gain. That's where we're going today. Godliness is our great gain. And Paul's going to come to that here in just a moment. We've been studying through First Timothy for a while. And, uh, and, and, and we're coming to really some of the nitty-gritty theological reality of this glorious book and, and the work of the gospel in uh, the kingdom, inside the community of the kingdom, the church, and, and probably one of the greatest values we will discover, we'll discover today in, in this text. Scripture is inspired. We know this. Paul may be pushing the pen, but the Spirit is authoring the words. Second Peter one twenty one says it best when it says, No prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Paul may be pushing the pen, but these are not Paul's words. These are God's words. As a result of that, the Scriptures never ever fail to return without accomplishing the Lord's mission. They never fail. Never fail. The instruction for 1 Timothy has hit the mark in addressing the church at Ephesus and in addressing their under-shepherd, Timothy. We can never, ever escape God's Word. We either hear and obey, or we hear and we disobey. Or we never hear... And we're still accountable because we have a conscience that testifies to the truth. So whether a false teacher or a pastor struggling to hold to the truth or a member following false teaching or following their own desires or following their own lusts or a member seeking to hold to the truth and follow the shepherd as he is seeking to follow the under-shepherd Scripture speaks, and Holy Spirit never misses His mark. So the question today isn't, is God speaking to His people? The question is, are we hearing and are we obeying? 
I say this to say that Holy Spirit this morning is speaking. We're either listening and doing or we're not. He's not silent today. He's not silent. The Lord, through Paul, has rebuked the false teaching and He's rebuked the false teachers. He's instructed on how to do life together on the mission. He's corrected the aesthetics. He's corrected the widows. And He's corrected the masters and He's corrected the slaves. And oh, how thankful I am for posting last week. If you didn't hear last week, you know, go to the website, pull that down and listen to it. It's easy to look over these passages like 1 Timothy 6, 1 to 2, and think, oh, that doesn't have anything to do with us. You go listen to that because it will correct you. Because that's what the scriptures do, because God loves his people, because the heart of that passage is as relevant now as it's ever been. Thank you, Poston. Thank you for pastors and men who can teach God's word to feed us. Blesses my soul. Now the attention, though, returns in chapter 6, verse 3 to 10 to a quick contrast of the truth versus lies. And he's going to give us an analysis of the false teacher's character and the resulting devastation in the church in verses 3 to 5. And then Paul's going to give the Lord's plea for truth. And that's where the title is taken from today. If you look in the notes online... Godliness is our great gain. It's from that place where he gives the Lord's plea for truth that we take that title. And then he's going to give a corrective response to the false teachers in verse 6 to 10. None of us here this morning are immune from the instruction of the word. Sometimes it's easy to come to the fellowship, the gathering of the fellowship, and look at other people and point at them and go, you need to hear today. And I'm God's prophet, and you need to listen to what I have to say. But the reality is none of us are immune from the instruction of the Word. And for me personally, last week was a glorious proof of that. And hopefully none of us are false teachers. But perhaps some of us wrestle with our sinful nature. And we wrestle with our sinful desires and the things that seek to pull us away from the kingdom. And maybe in wrestling with that, we wrestle in the snares of the evil one. And we're in need of the Lord's grace to back us off the cusp of stepping into a trap. So my hope this morning is the Lord would accomplish His purpose in shepherding His people this morning through this passage. So, 1 Timothy 6, 3-10, let's listen to the words of the Lord. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Those are strong words. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's huge. That's monumental. 
For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So let's take a look at the analysis of the false teachers in verse 3 to 5. Paul analyzes the false teaching by contrasting the truth with the lies of the false teaching. He says here, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, dot, 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 dot. We'll come up to the rest of that passage in just a moment. In this passage here, Paul doesn't name the false teachers. Probably because Timothy already knows who they are, but also because the potential exists that they will not be the only ones. There will be more. That perhaps will arise. So Paul addresses anyone. Anybody. Who would teach a different doctrine. This different doctrine is contrasted with what makes it different. And what makes it different and false. If you're following along on the notes that I posted on the blog. This is underlined, highlighted and italicized. Which means it's important. What makes it different and false is the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with what fits the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Paul calls godliness. In other words, Jesus has spoken. The Bible is the record of God's words. Jesus said He was that God. Therefore, the words of Scripture are the sound words of Jesus Christ. And Paul uses this word sound to describe how solid Jesus' teaching is. Literally meaning healthy. The teaching of the Bible produces ultimate health. There's more to health than my physical body. The soul's fitness is as vital as this fallen shell that I will shed at the resurrection for a new one. But Paul also recognizes teachings that accord with godliness as the exposition of the words of the Lord Jesus. This godliness is defined as piety toward God. In other words, godliness is the practice of acting like Jesus as he instructed in his teaching. Therefore, the teachings that accord with godliness, that are in line with the sound teachings of Jesus, are the ways the Scriptures teach us to act like Jesus. Therefore, false teaching, this false teaching that is being addressed again, is counter to what the Bible says is the truth in doctrine and in practice. Does that make sense? In other words, if anybody teaches anything that is contrary to Jesus' teaching and the godliness, the piety toward God, the practice of Jesus' teaching, if they teach anything contrary to those words and the practice of those words, they are a false teacher. So therefore, the false teaching is contrasted with the true teaching. What's the true teaching? Jesus' word 
and the practice of it. It's that simple. So what do we do with this? Well, there's three very easy, simple, and it feels like I beat a dead horse on these all the time, but I can't overemphasize how vital they are. We're doing question and answer with the students this morning downstairs, and your students come with great questions. And so we did a good, I guess, hour on Q&A. And this came up as an answer to one of their questions. How, how do I go into my college experience and maintain the faith? Great question. The first and very complex, but also at the same time, lifelong answer to that question is, you and I have to use Scripture as the manual, and we cannot be ignorant of what it says. How do I know truth and the practice of the truth? My elementary students say this in chapel. It's in the manual. And they scream it with gusto. Where do you find truth? It's in the manual. Right. Adults. How do we know godliness in the practice of it? How do we know the teachings of Jesus and the practice of the teachings of Jesus? Awesome. You got it. It's in the manual. Because what we can't afford to do is when someone comes and asks us a question about a passage we've never read while claiming to be Christians, we can't answer their question. We're not prepared. And what do the Scriptures teach us? Be always prepared to give an answer. Right? I can't be prepared with an answer if I don't even know what's there. I'm going to throw this out there to you. It may sound harsh and it may sound... well. I'm not real sure I care how it sounds, but it's true. You can't afford to go public as a believer and not know what's in the manual for the believer. That makes sense. I'm thankful that when lightning hits people, there are people like Nathan Hicks who didn't cheat on his wilderness EMT training. And failed to read a section. I need him to know what he's talking about. Amen? Y'all don't know. I do. I need him to know what he's talking about. When someone whose soul is pillaged from the fall. And they come to you because you say, Christian... And they bring to you something you need to know how to answer. And so therefore, anything contrary to the sound words of the Lord Jesus and the practice of those sound words is false. And so therefore, Scripture is our manual. Not my opinion, not your opinion, not my thoughts, not your thoughts. The truth of what is there. Sometimes do we have to wrestle through and dig to get to the foundation of that. Yes, we do, but we dig. We use Scripture as the manual. What else do we do with this? Well, number two, we learn how to accurately read and interpret the manual. I read across a passage that kind of threw me for a loop this week. And I had to, Jim, help me out. I'm texting Jim Lanier, man, this is, this, in light of my past two weeks, Second Chronicles 32, 31 is looping me, brother. I need some help. And you dig. You dig in community. You exposit the text. You ask critical questions. It means you're a student of the text. There's no one in here who's not a student. Whether you've graduated or not, or in the middle of the process, you're a student of the Bible. 
Dig, read, learn how to read well. We learn how to accurately read and interpret Scripture. And third, we adopt the values of God's kingdom as taught in Scripture and trust Jesus to sort out the rest. What we're going to discover as we read Scripture and we find that the sound teachings of Jesus are contrary to the domain of darkness, the challenge will come on whether or not you want to practice it. It's easier to practice the values of the domain of darkness than it is to practice the values of God's kingdom because they're in conflict. None of us like conflict, right? We just want to fit in, slide under the radar. But the reality is as we adopt the values of God's kingdom as taught in Scripture and trust Jesus to sort out the details, it's going to require us to stay on the text and live by those values. I want you to take note of what Paul says about the character of the false teachers and what the false teaching produces in verse 4 and 5. He says, this person that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he says he has puffed up with conceit, literally inflated with pride, and understands nothing. Nothing. Wow. And he has an unhealthy craving. It's one word that means delirious, and it's used metaphorically to denote a sickly longing for something. Have an unhealthy craving for controversy. In other words, an exchanging of words rather than a search for truth. And they have an unhealthy craving for quarrels about words, the disputes of meanings, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining. This word imagine literally is assume. Don't assume anything. That godliness is a means of gain. Wow. So the character of these false teachers produced some devastation in the life of the church. First we learn that a false teacher is inflated with pride. And in reality they understand absolutely nothing. There is this sense in which those who teach God's Word must hold to the truths of Scripture with a closed hand, but do so in such a way that we listen and are careful, and as Paul pointed out to Timothy, exercise gentility. Not inflated with pride, but recognizing I hold no source of knowledge in myself. I'm simply a vehicle for truth. Because those who are inflated with pride. Are more than likely really understanding nothing. So false teachers are inflated with pride. And in reality have no understanding. Number two. The false teacher has cravings that are sick and not healthy. Like arguing about words. The facts are not enough. So what do they do? They take words and they find a secondary or a third or a fourth meaning somewhere down the line having nothing to do with the context to justify their belief. And so they have a sick craving for arguments. False teacher produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Hey, by the way, if you and I are constantly people that dissension and slander follow, 
there's a good shot you or I may need to repent and believe the gospel. If there's envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, the good, there's a good chance we're missing something. There's a good chance we're missing a point. There's a good chance we need to repent. So with these false teachers, the devastation of envy, dissension, slander, evil suspension, and constant friction fill the church. Number four, the false teacher produces their devastating results among corrupt people lacking in truth. And notice this. False teachers always find a way to hole up into a group and propagate the cancer. And next thing you know, one person with the cancer has got a whole group infected with the cancer. And what does the scripture tell us about these people? They are deprived in mind and depraved of the truth. I mean, the reason they buy into it is because truth doesn't define them. The lies define them. So false teachers produce their devastation among people lacking in the truth. And then false teachers and their followers think that following Jesus is all about gain in this world system while missing the kingdom of God that is opposed to the system of the world. They think, if I follow Jesus, there will be good things that will happen to me. That is a sinful and false assumption. The challenge is going to be understanding that good. And we'll address that in just a moment because Paul's about to address it. If I follow Jesus, only what I think is good and comfortable will happen to me. And Paul's about to correct that false teaching because it's not Jesus' words and it is not a teaching that accords with godliness. So Paul comes in verse 6 to 10 with a plea for truth and a corrective response to the false teachers. In verse 6 to 8, listen to Paul's plea for truth. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. One of Satan's great lies is propagating the idea that the kingdom of this world operates the way God operates. Let me say it another way. One of Satan's great lies is keeping people blind to the fact that the world system is broken and being replaced and overran with the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And they operate on two different sets of values. You see, the false teachers, what they do is they take a value of the kingdom of this world, the domain of darkness, and they embed it. A little Narnia reference for you coming. A little Narnia nerds. They embed it in some Turkish delight. And they feed it to unsuspecting Bibleless people seeking their own lust. And they eat it and they come under the spell. It appears that there were some here who were teaching that their financial gain or their material gain was the sole sign of God's grace to them. Paul turns this on its head when he says that godliness is actually the gain. The gain isn't what they get. The gain is God Himself. 
You see, the fall assumed through the lies of the enemy that gaining knowledge and fruit from a tree was more vital than the God who gave knowledge. So they rebelled. In the kingdom restored, hear this carefully, in the kingdom restored, being like God, fully restored to a pre-fall perfection, and knowing God right is the gain, because that is the ultimate good. How many of us, if Jesus is all we had, would be content and happy? I can't raise my hand. There is much kingdom work to be done in this soul. Because the reality is, Jesus just isn't enough for me. Paul makes this clear when he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Being like God, imitating God, and being content with that assumes some glorious and vital truths. And I want to unpack this with you for a moment. Listen to Jesus' words to John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 2-6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Whoa, John's in prison. This is John the Baptist. The one who said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And preached the coming Christ. Is this that John? Yes. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I thought he was sure. Didn't you? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Those words sound mysterious. But shouldn't Jesus say, John will be over in just a few minutes, get you out, it's going to be all good. See, John the Baptist was the obedient servant who came in the spirit and power of Elijah to proclaim the coming of the kingdom and the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. But John's now in prison. And he's not sure if all his preaching was right or maybe even in vain. So John sends his boys to ask Jesus for sure. Did you catch Jesus' response? Blessed is the one not offended by me. In other words, Jesus was giving the blind their sight, the deaf their hearing, and the lame the ability to walk, but leaving John in prison to be beheaded. Godliness with contentment is the gain, not godliness with rescue every time. Jesus, in essence, says, obey John, and if I don't deliver you, don't be offended. Be okay, John. If I strike you with lightning, be okay. Interpret it through the lens of the gospel. You see, Jesus never promises to treat any of us the same. Post and hit this last week. Never promises to treat any of us the same. Some he gives riches, some he hits with lightning and asks the question, do you trust me? Blessed are you if you're not offended by me when I don't do for you what I did for others. This kingdom truth is the great game. 
That's the gain. That is the riches. That's the treasure hidden in a field. That's the pearl of great price. That's the treasure right there. Come what may, King Jesus has got it. And I won't be offended if He doesn't do for me what He did for everybody else. You see, this kind of gain, this kind of treasure believes some things. Number one, this kind of gain believes following Jesus is life. Not, I get life from Jesus, but Jesus is my life. It says things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the treasure. And what does the domain of darkness say? No, 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 no. The treasure is there to give you something. Not, Jesus is the treasure. This kind of game believes trusting Jesus is sufficient even if we don't have all the answers. Or we're stuck in a dark moment and can't get out. This kind of game believes that suffering is sometimes identifying with Christ. That sounds vaguely biblical somewhere. I think Paul said that. And getting to taste His resurrection power. And his millisecond providential timing. You ever thought about what Paul said when we, we identify with Christ in his resurrection and in his death? You don't taste resurrection unless you die. Sometimes, sometimes the gain is I get to know God as enough. This kind of gain recognizes and believes that riches are even barely enough are given not for oneself, but the advancement of the kingdom as managers of His resources. This kind of gain rejoices and is glad when doing kingdom work is hard because Jesus said that is good. This kind of gain believes that God never does anything but good to me. This kind of gain believes that Jesus didn't wrong John the Baptist, but graced him with abundance. This kind of gain believes God is sovereign even over Satan, so that all things come by His hand. And grace and His love and kindness, and nothing is for my destruction in the gospel. This is great gain. And Paul says to those who were teaching that the gain is something else. That is not the word of Jesus. And that is not a teaching from the word of Jesus that accords with godliness. Godliness is the gain. I ask you a very simple question. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for you? What if Jesus never gives you anything else but begins to take from you? Do you believe that's good for you? Or would you rather have the cancer than Jesus? Would you rather have what the system opposed to the gospel would give you? Or would you rather have Jesus? What we're going to learn here is that if we decide that 
If we want to come after the kingdom of this world and, and we think that having more and more and more and more and more is evidence of God's grace to me, then we're going to find verse 9 and 10 to be really hard to not rip out of our Bibles. What we learn in verse 9 and 10 is greed and covetousness are a fall into an abyss of destruction. Verse 9 and 10 are a gold mine of exposition. Now I'm going to do my best to try to run through this a little bit. If you have the notes, you notice in red I, I did some grammatical fun stuff in the text there to kind of help you see the language. I'm just going to read through it with my notes, okay? If you're following along, this will kind of make sense. If you're not, I may confuse you, so I'm going to do my best to explain, okay? Verse 9, but those who desire, this word desire is in the passive voice. And it denotes the predisposition toward pursuit. So it's a passive. It's just sort of a predisposition that's there. It's just there. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. This is the second time Paul has mentioned this snare. In 1 Timothy 3.7, he expresses this snare is set by the enemy. It's set by Satan. So those who have this passive sort of internal compunction, pushing them to get more and more and more, are close to falling into a snare, and the temptation that produces the passive desire has been put there by Satan. That's stark language. And he says they fall into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires. The second time in verse 9, he's used the word desire, but it's not the same word. It's a different word. And it speaks to a deep and intense desire moving toward lust. The idea now is that having stepped in the snare, the snare is good. The trap tastes good. And they like the trap. And the passive desire now shifts to an active desire to stay in the trap. How counterintuitive is that? If you get in a trap, what do you want to do? Get out. You ever trap animals? What happens? I know some people are like too politically correct to trap animals for pelts. But the animal will chew its leg off to get out of the snare. Here, those who fall into this snare like it. We want to stay in it. And the desire to stay in the snare gets deeper and deeper and deeper. That's what that word, epithumia, has in mind. And he says, into many senseless and harmful desires. They're senseless. They don't make sense. That's why we look at that and go, that doesn't make any sense. That's not because it's senseless. It's contrary to the kingdom of light. And it's harmful, he says. And he says, that plunge, that plunge, that is, being in this snare is so deep that there's no escape. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money. That's a misquoting of the passage. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In the New Testament, this word evil, particularly used here, means to recede into oneself and to retreat. 
this person who's fallen into this snare begins to retreat into themselves and depend on their own heart to determine direction. That sounds like a good Disney movie. Listen to your heart. You know it in your heart. Just obey your heart. That is the biggest lie that Satan has ever propagated on our culture. Just listen to your heart, man. Obey your heart. Jesus said out of the heart come adultery, theft, murder, and so on and so forth. These are what defile a person and make them unclean, not the food you eat. Paul says this kind of lust, this deeply ingrained trap that has been fallen into is a root of retreating into yourself and the evil only propagates because you're learning to lean on your fallen nature and you think it's good. And he says here, it is through this craving to stretch out and to snatch. You get the... If you've read Chronicles of Narnia, you get the picture here. If you've read The Hobbit and all of Tolkien stuff, you get the picture here. A person's so trapped in it that they can't get out of it. And there's a constant stretching and craving for evil things. And he says, through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's not a pretty picture, is it? Not a pretty picture. See, it's vital to take note of the progress of greed and being covetous toward a place that one can't return from. This passage is stark with the imagery that if a person falls in love with gain outside of Jesus Christ, they're stepping into a snare that can drag them down into an abyss from which there is no return. This destruction looks like a love for gain other than Jesus and it results in all kinds of evil. Paul says that this kind of craving has led some in the church from the faith. I would argue that the persecution of the church is not our greatest danger. It might be our greatest grace. The greatest danger is not the mind you can see, but the one that's hidden and you step on and don't realize you stepped on it until it blows you up. I would argue that the pursuit of things apart from Christ made easy by prosperity in a prosperous culture is perhaps the greatest and most lethal mind that the Christian can step on. I continue to get hit with this when I travel to other parts of the world. I'm constantly blown away by the fact that believers have nothing and are happy. Happy. We have everything and we got to get a, get our happy from... I mean, just name the list of sources other than Jesus. They have Christ. That's enough. Paul says this craving has led some in the church away from the faith. The image of this craving is one having been snatched into this darkness. And that image reminds me of some of the commercials of horror movies that you see on television where the person's in the room and the bad thing reaches and snatches them away. That's the image here. Paul says they've wandered from the truth. 
This word wandered is passive and implies that the wandering is a result of being snatched by the snare. And the wandering has caused the person to go deeper into the abyss of destruction. Again, not a pretty picture. He says, these, post, these folks have pierced themselves with many pangs and difficulties that are the least of their worries because they've now stepped into this Hebrew 6 sort of no return place that is devastating. Paul says, this is what's happened in the church at Ephesus. And Timothy, you have to teach the truth. You have to hold on to the truth. Because if anyone teaches a doctrine different than the words of Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and he knows nothing. Doesn't even know he stepped into the abyss. He doesn't even know he's dragging people with him. And the people following don't even know they bought the light. They've eaten the Turkish delight under the spell and are happy with it. That scares me more than a bullet to the head. What do we take from this passage this morning? What do we take from this passage? Well, number one, there is never enough teaching of truth. Never enough teaching of truth. Regardless of what some people think is cool in the church planting world or, or trendy in certain parts of the country, there's never enough teaching of truth. The teaching of the Bible, there's never enough of it. We are all prone to wonder, right? I am. The voices of the world system and my culture are constantly talking to me, seeking to draw me away from the truth. I'm constantly enticed by things that will kill my soul. And so I need the truth to be preached to me. I need to know the truth of Scripture. There's never enough teaching of truth. Number two, there's never enough practice of the truth. If we can carry away some big picture items from 1 Timothy, it's that Paul's instruction to Timothy is preach the truth and demand on its practice. Timothy, you have to go do these things. They have to do them. Timothy, drink some wine. The asceticism's killing your body physically and you've bought into the lie that you're more spiritual if you don't drink. Timothy, you're dying. You've got to know it and you've got to do it, Timothy. Right? So there's never enough truth taught and there's never enough practice. Our lives have to be consumed with obeying Scripture. I say this periodically, I'm going to say it again here. Stop belonging to more than one Bible study, please. We know enough. We need to practice what we know. It does no good to continue to take in more information and do nothing with it. The guys in the church in the East tell me that their Bible studies consist of 30 minutes of study and 30 minutes of doing. For them, the idea that you would take in information and do nothing with it is unintelligible to their worldview. The purpose of information is to change their actions. We think if I go to four Bible studies, I'm more spiritual than you because you only do one or you don't do any. So who's the bigger Christian? What I would argue, if you go to four Bible studies and do nothing with it, you need to repent. You need to obey what is written. There's never enough truth, but there's never enough practice of the truth. In other words, there should be a constant practicing. Listen, if you never leave the practice field and put on the uniform... 
turn on the clock, flip the lights on, blow the whistle and start running the clock. It doesn't matter how much you know or how well you run the toss sweep this football season, as you can tell. Glory to God. It does not matter if you know the playbook if you don't know how to execute it. You can't dominate the guy across the line of scrimmage from you. It doesn't matter how well you run the toss. Because a dummy that your friend's holding across the line is not going to fight back. That 240-pound hoss will. So everything has to go from knowing to doing. Never enough truth. Never enough practice of the truth. I would argue we'll never know the power of God until we start doing what God's told us to do in the manual. You'll never know the supply of God till you take on something you can't see yourself doing, but it's obedience to the truth. Jesus calls us all to do stuff we can't pull off. Just know that. Jesus doesn't call, hey, be comfortable. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but it's a yoke. You've got to pull a cart. There's work to be done. But you know what He does? He makes a way. It's just kind of what He does. The supernatural work of God and His people is one of the things that draws the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What's wrong with those people? Those people are actually alive. Hmm. I wonder what it is. And guess what happens? Kingdom of light people start telling about the gospel. And like, whoa! Okay! And guess what happens? Evangelism takes place. Missions take place. Got to do. Another thing we take away is there's never a moment that's just a moment with no implications. Every moment counts. Every moment we're taking in information and we're making value decisions. And they're either for the kingdom or for the domain of darkness. Perhaps disguised as meaningless Turkish delight that just propagates the curse. I tell my students this all the time. There's never a moment that doesn't count. Free time is not free time. You make value judgments in the middle of your free time. I do. Be aware of the decisions you make even in free time. What you look at. You know one of my most vulnerable moments? It's free time. I sin more in free time than I do when I'm devastatingly tired and busy in the kingdom. There's never a moment that's just a moment with no implications. We're moving the kingdom forward or we're buying the Turkish delight and propagating the curse. For godliness is of more value than keeping up financially. I spend most of my life worrying about how this or that's going to get done financially. I lose sleep over that trash. In spite of the fact that the Bible's clear. Matthew 6, I mean Luke 12, just the Bible. Godliness is more valuable than keeping up financially because here's here's the lie. Here it is. You ready? We just assume that the value of the dollar is stable. That's a bad assumption. That's a really bad assumption. You know what's going to happen? If the dollar tanks... Donald Trump and I are going to be on the same level playing field. And I have more guns than him. I'm just saying. So, could it be that there's an eternal value bigger than financial gain? 
Is it possible? Well, according to our text, the gain is Christ. Jesus isn't going anywhere. I'm telling you, I'm not there. I'm talking this trash to you, and I will leave this building and immediately start wrestling with it again. I'm not there yet. But so that I'm not a false teacher, not propagating the sound words of Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, I've got to say this to you and to myself. I'm preaching to the choir. I don't, there's not a choir. That's bad terminology. Sorry, it's church language. I'm preaching to myself, to all of us. Be careful. There are values in play in the kingdom that are better and deeper and eternal as opposed to things that are temporal. Five, covetousness will kill me and lead me to hell. Covetousness will kill me and lead me to hell. I had this, some of you guys know, two weeks ago, tomorrow, I got hit with lightning. And, and uh, it was just sort of this really strange moment, providential moment. Stepped out a door. It wasn't sitting out in the field in the thunderstorm with a metal rod going, Hey! It's not what was happening. Stepped out a door. Happened to be holding a doorknob into a metal facility that was ground into the ground. And I just basically became a big conduit. Big conduit. And I haven't processed this. I haven't said much about it. And I'm kind of going to write on it at some point. The idea that external physical things are more dangerous than the unseen spiritual things is a lie. What profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and... Could it be that covetousness is more dangerous than lightning? Imagining godliness is a means to great gain. If I follow Jesus, all will be well. Nothing will ever hurt. Never be any difficulty. Rather than godliness is the gain. Those two are worlds apart and they cannot be brought together. They're two different kingdoms. Covetousness will kill me and lead me to hell. Lightning can kill me too. But if I die in Christ, that's my gain. If I follow covetousness, I'm not a Christian. Number six, the teaching of demons and the teaching of culture and the traditions of mankind, see Colossians 2.8, are well disguised and require the lens of Scripture to recognize and reject said a moment ago, there are no benign moments. There are no benign teachings. There's no information that's just information. Worldview 101. No information is benign. It is all pointed or slanted toward the kingdom or away from it. Colossians 2.8 is clear. That traditional, cultural things coming out of our setting is influenced by the demonic. And if it is not according to Christ, it is that, that demonic thing. And so, it requires the lens of Scripture to discern 
we need to know. There's more in play than my physical life. Number seven, almost done, all of us are constantly susceptible to being deceived and have to stay sober-minded and be ready because our enemy prowls as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And finally, worship with the people of God in unity and on mission is not a waste of time. And it requires discipline to commit to. This is the experiential thing I put in here. This is... You can take this and, and maybe there's a Bible verse that will support it. I don't know. I'm just giving you my experience of the gathering. This is the one place that my soul and mind rest every week. I can't explain that. But my soul and my mind come to rest when we gather. It's just me. Okay? And my hunch is this. This is just my hunch. Because... Holy Spirit dwells in me, dwells in you, and we're all together. There's, there's power in that somehow. We're told in Revelation, Jesus walks among His churches. You know? He walks with me daily. That's what Holy Spirit does. He's our counselor. But we're together. There's a special dynamic of the people of God gathered. And when I come in here, it's funny how these questions in my mind during the week that cause me to wrestle clear up. Like I see clearly, it's like, oh. And I'm just, I crave, I can't not. It's weird for me to miss this. It's weird. It propagates stuff that's not healthy for my soul. When I come in this place, things just get clear. I enjoy God's people. It's amazing. And so what I say here is we come together and we fight against things that are contrary to the teaching of Christ and the Doctrines that accord with godliness. Don't miss worshiping with God's people. There's something about the gathering of the church. The dynamic of the kingdom of God that's vital to the soul. And so I invite you. To come. And taste and know and experience as we sing together and as we pray together. The power of. Of the doctrine of Christ. And all the teaching that accords with godliness. As we live it out in worship and in song. You want to do that? I think it would be appropriate to do that. I think it would make Jesus big. And encourage our soul. Would you pray with me? Father in the name of Jesus Christ today. We pray for your help. We ask you to lead us. And help us. We ask you to fill us with your spirit. Holy Spirit. We want to be vessels of your. Of your purpose today. We want to achieve your mission today. We want to we want to obey. So I pray that you would counsel, teach, lead, convict, achieve all the purpose for which Jesus has sent you to indwell your people. I pray today that you would send your people to minister to one another. We ask you to gift and supply that your people may be ministered to. We ask you to mobilize us to do the things that you've already told us to do and perhaps we're afraid to do. Holy Spirit, I ask you to remove fear and whatever stumbling block or whatever stands in the way of your people obeying what you have given them to do. So would you please do that this morning? 
make us effective in our town and make us effective globally. So that the teaching that accords with godliness, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, would not just reverberate, but they would sound forth and transform. Here and there, for your glory and our joy. Amen.